morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri. St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri. We welcome you to Sunday morning Bible class. We welcome all those who are here in our gymnasium. We have a little bit different configuration today, a little more uh, intimate, I guess we'd say, a little closer together. Uh, we welcome also our listeners in the St. Louis area on KFUO 850 AM. And we welcome also all who might be listening online at KFUO.org. We welcome you all. Thankful for this opportunity to get together and study God's Word together. As we normally do, we're going to be looking at the three scripture lessons that are assigned for next Sunday. So these will be the lessons that in most, uh, at least most Lutheran churches and in others as well, uh, will be heard uh, next Sunday on August 25. Before we begin, though, let's uh, start appropriately with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, for the day of life that you have granted to us and for the eternal life that you have granted us through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray you keep us steadfast in your word, keep us strong in our faith on this pilgrimage until you welcome us home and, and that day that you have set and arranged for all of us. We thank you also for your word and for this opportunity to study together. We pray your Holy Spirit will bless our study that we may continue to grow in our knowledge of your word and especially of your will for us as your children here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as is usually the case, we have a good connection today between the Old Testament lesson and the Gospel lesson. Remember that those are ordinarily the two that are somewhat connected. Uh, sometimes there's a real strong connection and it's easy to identify. Other times it's a little more obscure and we have to kind of, uh, you know, figure out what it might be. But uh, today I think the connection is pretty clear. Uh, we're going to look at Isaiah 66, which is the last chapter in the book of Isaiah. And it is going to be talking about the end times and about a great gathering that God is going to bring about, both a judgment and a gathering. And then in the gospel lesson, we're going to have Jesus uh, talking about that same thing, about the last day, about a door that is shut and some will try to get in and will not be able to. So the connection is pretty clear here today. We won't have to look very far to find it. And then we're going to look also at Hebrews chapter 12. If you've been uh, in church these last few weeks, you know that we've, with the epistle lessons, we've had a series here from the book of Hebrews, which is what happens Many times during summers, we have the opportunity to go through uh, large parts of one of the epistles, and this year it is Hebrews. And so we'll look at Hebrews chapter 12, and that's the section that talks about the Lord disciplining his children. We'll talk about that. What does that mean? And how do we understand that as Lutherans? So first of all, let's go to Isaiah chapter 66. For those who are here in the gymnasium, there are sheets over on the side that do have, the, have these lessons printed out. And... Isaiah 66, we're going to see, is much like the book of Isaiah in general. In the same chapter, in fact, it can be a ver right, a verses right next to each other, you can go from great gospel and, and uh, promise and, and just wonderful things, the very next verse you're down in judgment and in condemnation. And this chapter contains really both. And we're going to see ironically here, as, we're, as we see in the, in the gospel lesson again as well, that ironically it's some of God's own people, in fact many of God's own chosen covenant people, who are not going to be amongst those who are saved. That's the bad news. The good news is 
that God is going to have a big gathering in of people from east and west and north and south, and that includes, of course, the Gentiles. And that includes us, obviously, as well. And so let's take a look at this and kind of keep all this in mind. Uh, we'll start with verse 18. Verse 17, though, if, if we had a, uh, read it, if we included it, uh, is a verse of judgment on God's people. Okay, so verse 17 talks about uh, judgment upon them. But then verse 18, where we are, for I, that would be God, of course, know their works and their thoughts. This is talking again about his people who are being judged. I know their works, I know their thoughts, and the day is coming to gather all nations and tongues. Now there's a prime example of what I was just talking about, right? You start off with judgment. I know their thoughts and their deeds. Here comes the good news though. The time is coming to gather all nations. That word nations in, uh, in Hebrew is the goyim, and that was used for Gentiles. Okay? So we're going beyond God's people. So the bad news is that I know their, their sinful thoughts and their sinful works. The good news is the day is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And you can just sense the, the judgment that's happening, uh, judgment day, when that gathering will take place. There's almost, when you stop and think about it, <clears throat> there's almost a now and not yet aspect to this. God is already gathering, isn't he, in a way, with the Great Commission and the proclamation of the gospel to all the nations. There's a sense in which that, that gathering is already taking place and the good news is being preached and people are repenting and people are being saved even as we stand here today or sit here today. And yet there's another sense in which that final gathering, that's the final, you might say the final harvest, is yet to come. Okay? So there's sort of a, a now fulfillment and a then fulfillment to this kind of thing as well. Okay? So going on, and they, that's these nations, they shall come and see my glory. And, of course, we think about that day when Christ will return, not in meekness, you know, as he came the first time, as, a, as an infant born in a, in, a, in a stable, but will come in all power and glory, and every eye will see him. You know, there's going to be no, uh, no uh, gee, I, I, have to, I have something I need to do. I'll be back uh, later. No, every eye will see him. There will be no... Uh, uh, getting out of this. They will all see. And, uh, verse 19, and I will set a sign among them. Now, it's interesting. There are some authors who feel, and you could certainly argue this, that that sign has already been set in front of them, and that sign is none other than God's own Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, notice there where it says, they will see my glory. Well, think of John... Uh, 1 verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld what his glory glory as of the only begotten of the father so there is a sense again a now sense in which God has already accomplished this he sent this sign already and of course Christ is much more than a mere sign I realize but he has sent them something that should be unmistakable and again many have not believed and from them, meaning from Israel, I will send, 
survivors. Uh, that survivors is not, a better translation would be rescued ones. Those who have been rescued. So God's sending this sign, and from those who are the rescued ones now, he's going to send out his messengers to come in and bring in this big harvest. Again, you can, you can see how in some aspects this has already been fulfilled in that Christ has come, there are believers, and they are going out to gather in the harvest, the Lord's harvest. Now, again, the final gathering will be on the day when Christ returns, and that's certainly what he's talking about as well. So, uh, so again, and from them, I will send survivors, notice here again, to where? To the nations, to the goyim again, to the Gentiles, I'm going to send them. And notice the cities, Tarshish, Pol, and Lud, and these, I, I don't have a map or any way of displaying a map here, but... These would be outward territories. In other words, the idea is we're not just going to the next county here. We're going out a far ways with this. You know, this is not some limited operation. God is sending out his messengers far and wide to the nations, uh, to Tubal to, and Javan, to the coastlands far away. They have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And again, you think about what happened in the New Testament church when this is exactly what occurred and has been occurring ever since, that God's messengers have gone out and they have not heard yet. People have not heard of the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, and they are being, God is bringing them to repentance and to faith. And it's interesting that uh, later on in Galatians 3, Paul is going to talk about who are really the sons of Abraham. And it's those who have faith. They are sons of Abraham through faith. That's Galatians 3, uh, 26 through 29. Okay? So you can't, uh, to the Jews, to the, to the biological sons of Abraham, you cannot rest on your laurels of being a, a descendant of Abraham. The true descendants of Abraham are those who believe, who have faith. And they are the new Israel, if you will, of God. Okay? So, what's going to happen then on that day? Notice verse 20. And they shall bring all your brothers. Now, this is interesting. The Gentiles are going to be thought of as the brothers of God's people. And this was, was totally antithetical to any Jew at that time that the Gentiles would be even included. You know, when they would go to the market, when the Jews would go to the market, and this is in Mark, oh, I forget the chapter now, around 7, I believe, they would go to the market and they would come home and they would wash everything that they got in the marketplace. Not because they were concerned about hygiene, but because a Gentile might have touched it in the marketplace and made it unclean. And they would go through those cleansing ceremonies. Uh, and that's just one example. So take that kind of thinking and juxtapose what Isaiah is saying here, that now even the Gentiles are going to be counted among your brothers, right? It, you, you hear uh, echoes of Galatians again, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, right? Male nor female, circumcised nor uncircumcised. In Christ all are one. And again, they have such a hard time uh, getting this. Okay? Okay. Uh, 
So your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. Again, notice the positive way that these Gentiles and all who are brought in are spoken of. It's like they're an offering to the Lord, something pleasing in the sight of the Lord. God is, uh, well, as Jesus says, there's joy in heaven, right, over one sinner who repents. Well, multiply that by all these people. And God is just delighting in this great harvest that comes at the end. Um, then going on, on notice they're, they're, this great ingathering is pictured as coming in on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries. You get the, you get the idea almost of a heavenly procession going on here, right? Every possible animal they can commandeer, uh, they're getting on and they're riding to this, to this great uh, gathering that God is bringing about, this great gathering on the last day. Uh, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. So it's almost, again, this picture of an offering and something that is pleasing in the sight of the Lord. And here's, here comes a shocking one, verse 21. And some of them I will take for priests and for Levites. Now, what is shocking about that? The Gentiles? God is going to commission the Gentiles to be priests and be his servants in the same way that the Levites were? This was unthinkable to any respectable Jew that, that this could possibly happen. This would be, if, if Jesus would have said this, they, he would have been accused of blasphemy again, in other ways. But th that notice here, and uh, you think of in 1 Peter, we are, as Gentiles now, are called what? A royal priesthood, right? We all are servants now in that way of the one true God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And, but again, to the, to the Jews 700 years before Christ, this was unthinkable that, that this could happen. Not only are they coming in and they're going to be called our brothers, that's bad enough, but they're going to be clergy? They're going to be the priests? Uh, verse uh, 22, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain forever. Well, it's offspring of Abraham, again, in the spiritual sense, those who trust and believe in Jesus Christ, the spiritual offspring, we might say, of the servant, of the suffering servant, of Jesus Christ. Notice that they will remain, and that name shall remain forever. Okay? From new moon to new moon. Now, new moon was a festival. Guess when they had the new moon festival? When, well, when there was a new moon, right? It was, yeah, this is not hard. This is not a trick question. They would have the new moon festival. It was every, every time there was a new moon, they'd have a festival. It was, it was in the Old Testament. God prescribed. There was nothing wrong with it. So, yeah, this is not a hard one. I was trying to trick you. So uh, they would have, you know, from new moon to new moon. And what God is saying here, from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, just a way of keeping time, that even in this new heaven and this new earth, there's going to be, it seems, a pattern or a rhythm to our worship of God, to our serving of God, in a way that we have maybe just a shadow of that right now. But in the new heaven and the new earth, in other words, our, our, our heavenly home, as we heard about in the, in the sermon today, uh, 
there will be this sort of rhythm similar to what we have here. Uh, and from Sabbath, all flesh. Notice there, all flesh. Well, that's all flesh who are still around and in the presence of God after the judgment, right? All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Now, if that doesn't match up with the book of Revelation, you know, this is the, this is the, the final chapter in Isaiah. And by the way, just FYI, there's one more verse in Isaiah. And uh, they didn't include it in the, in the lectionary reading because guess what it is? Judgment. That they look out and see dead bodies all over. And that, that's, I guess they didn't want to end the Old Testament lesson that way. And, but it's, again, one more example of what I said before. We got all this great stuff, and then comes the downer, at, at, you know, the last verse. But just think of how well this, this echoes, or uh, chronologically, think how well Revelation echoes this, right? In Revelation 7, for example, when you've got that depiction of vision of heaven, and it's a multitude that no one can number from every tribe and nation and people and language, that's exactly what we've got predicted here, right? Same sort of thing. It's not just a chosen people who, who trust the fact that they have a lineage that goes back to Abraham. No. It is all who by faith now are sons of Abraham. And that's the new Israel that God has formed. Uh, the new covenant versus the old covenant, okay, would be another way, I guess, of, of describing it, okay? So you see this in the Old Testament, and you certainly see, it's not explicitly stated here, but you certainly see new heaven and new earth and the idea of a resurrection and an everlasting uh, life in the presence, a name that will never fade away, right? All right, let me stop here, then we're going to jump to the gospel lesson in just a moment where we hear very similar things from Jesus. But let me ask you, any questions or any comments on any of these verses in Isaiah 66? Don? That's a great question. The question was, did people back at that time really comprehend what God was saying here? It just doesn't seem like it sank into them. Because even in Jesus' day, you've got, remember the encounter Jesus had with the Pharisees, and um, Jesus says, you know, if, you, uh, if you're truly my disciples, you will uh, stay in my word, uh, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then right away the Pharisees come back, well, we're children of Abraham, we've never been enslaved to anyone, and Jesus lets them know anybody who's committed sin is a slave to sin. It just doesn't seem like it sank in. And you've got plenty of places in the Old Testament that, you know, think of uh, a Simeon, a light to the nations, you know, at Christ's birth. You've got at the dedication of the temple, you have uh, Solomon praying that when the nations come from afar and pray, hear their prayer. I mean, there are so many places in the Old Testament, and it just doesn't seem like it sank in with them. So uh, you would think it would, and you would think they would look at this, and uh, it, it just seems on the one hand, they wanted to hang on to what they had and their understanding of what they had because, of course, they were the privileged ones and thought, you know, but yet they, they couldn't see how through their idolatry and their, their worshiping of the false gods that they were actually forsaking the very promise that, that God had given them. But yeah, it's a great question. You've got this idea of the nations and the Gentiles sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. It just doesn't seem like it, like it sank in with them. 
Okay? Like Lutherans, we have to, we have to realize there's going to be others there besides us, too, you know. <laughs> you know, well, I better not, we're on KFU, I better not do that joke. There's a joke I can tell you, but I'll, I'll pass now, I'll tell you afterward. All right, any other questions? Get myself in trouble. All right, let's go on to the gospel lesson here. And, um, you know, for all those who like the sweet and uh, uh, peaceful Jesus, this uh, is a rather harsh thing, uh, a harsh uh, uh, pronouncement by him. Um, this is in the travel narrative now. And remember, at Luke 9, 51, uh, chapter 9, verse 51, it says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And it's, it's like you stick your chin out. You set, set it like flint. I think there's one translation, set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. And this is the final time he's going to Jerusalem now. And he is going there with one purpose in mind, and that is to offer his life as sacrifice. He even tells the disciples more than once, here's what's going to happen. And uh, so he is on his way. And the, the intervening chapters that we have here are sometimes referred to as the travel narrative because he is traveling to Jerusalem. And we have a lot of material here in these chapters that is unique to Luke. We don't have it in the other Gospels. So this is a very uh, valuable section that we're in here. And uh, going on now, let's take a look what happens. And we're going to see here uh, that the real question that Jesus is going to pose, there's a guy who's going to ask him a real theoretical question. And, and you know, sort of a, uh, well, yeah, theological question. And Jesus is going to deflect that and get to the point, that the real point is, what is your relationship in the kingdom, to God in the kingdom, okay? So let's take a look at this, starting at verse 22 of Luke 13. He, this would be Jesus now, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. See, this is Luke's way of kind of keeping us in perspective here. He's traveling toward Jerusalem. And then verse 23, and someone said to him, Lord, will those who are, being, who are saved be few? So there's the theoretical question, right? Lord, are there going to be a lot of people saved or just a few? And so he's dealing with the, you know, the 30,000 feet question here, the real broad question. And he said to them, so Jesus, notice how Jesus is going to get right down to the point here. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So see, he doesn't even get into that discussion. There are going to be many or few, and yet he does sort of answer it. He turns it now to this guy and says, you strive to enter by the narrow door. Strive to enter what? Strive to enter eternal life or salvation. Now, who is or what is the narrow door? Jesus, exactly. You know, uh, I think of John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, what, except through me, right? So he is the narrow door that he's referencing here. He doesn't come out and say it in so many words, but that certainly is, is understood. So... If you were going to answer this guy's question, I guess if you imply from Jesus' response that it's going to be few in, he might say few in percentage perhaps. However, think of what we were just saying, that there are going to be multitudes from every tribe and nation and people and language. 
So I guess in some sense, it depends on how you, how you take it, right? There are still plenty of people, unfortunately, who are not going to be entering through that door. Okay? So it's kind of not, again, not good news here. Um, uh, so for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So going on, verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Wow. So the, let's, let's take apart the uh, picture here. The house would be heaven or eternal life, kingdom, however you want to phrase it. The door, of course, is the way into that house. The master, of course, is God. Okay. And so this is a picture, uh, uh, I guess you'd say an imagery, a way to look at Judgment Day. And on that day, of course, all, all is going to be known at that day. And there are some who are going to be knocking at the door and unable to come in. Notice here, who controls who gets into the house or not? The master does. Yeah, it's not up to us. It's not up to anybody else. The master controls. And you're either in or not because you either entered through the narrow door or not. Okay? And it, this kind of, you can see a comparison to the Old Testament lesson here too. God does the gathering, right? He sends out his messengers. They bring in, they do the gathering. They bring in the harvest, so to speak, or however you want to, procession, however you want to put it. Same thing here, okay? Then, so, uh, he, you know, what a thing, what a response. I do not know where you come from. Verse 26, then you, notice there, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. So what are they saying? We, Jesus, we knew you. We, we, you know, you, you taught in our streets here in Jerusalem and we ate and drank in your presence and, you know, we were right there with you. And he's talking, notice now, who's the referent here? It's you, the people he's talking to right now. He's in effect letting them know, you're going to be standing outside. At least the way you are right now, you're going to be standing outside, not getting in. So he's implicitly pronouncing a judgment here on them. And so what's, what's their point? Oh, come on now, Jesus. You know, we were right there next to you when you were teaching, and we were right there eating with you, uh, next to you, and so on. Now, you know who we are. You know where we came from. Uh-uh. Take a look at what he says. Um, verse 27, but he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. It's actually all you unrighteous ones. And the only way, of course, one can be righteous before God is through faith in Jesus Christ, through the narrow door again, okay? So notice there, it's a depart from me, all you unrighteous ones or workers of evil. And Jesus doesn't stop there. In that place, in other words, where they're going to be departing to, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom, but you yourselves cast out. Wow. 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be in that house, right? Because, again, of faith, right? Uh, Abraham believed God, and it was counted or reckoned to him as righteousness, Genesis 15, 6. And they are there because of faith. They believed the promise. They weren't there, obviously, yet. Christ wasn't here yet. But they believed the promise. And they are going to be there. And notice he says in no uncertain terms to them, you will not be there. Okay? Let's finish this, and then I want to, we're going to talk a little bit about this. Now, notice verse 29. Uh, and, and this, again, is in, in uh, ironic, you know. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Who are the people that are going to be coming in? This, again, remember the gathering imagery in, in uh, Isaiah 66. Who are the people that are going to be coming in from east and west and north and south? Gentiles. Yeah. And there may be some Jews as well, but uh, Gentiles. And notice what, what does it mean they're going to be reclining at table? They're going to have a big uh, uh, festival there? Yeah, it, it is the idea of a, the heavenly banquet, right? We say that. We, we have that imagery of the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom, which will have no end. And just think about that again. The Gentiles are going to be coming in from all these different territories. You will be cast out. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be there. And so will all these Gentiles. And again, it's a common um, uh, way of depicting the heavenly banquet, is reclining at table. That's the way they used to eat back in Bible times. They, would, they didn't have the chairs like we do here. They would recline uh, and, and uh, sort of on their side and would eat and drink. And they will be the ones there at the kingdom. Okay? We talk about our, uh, the Lord's Supper as a foretaste of that feast to come, right? that we have a, but a foretaste of what uh, that, that heavenly marital banquet, uh, unending banquet, is going to be in God's sight. Okay? And here comes uh, verse 30. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Now let me ask you this. Who are the last ones who will be the first ones? Gentiles, right? They were not the first. They were not God's chosen people from the get-go. And some who are last will be first. And the flip side, some who are first are going to be last. It's the great reversal that takes place. So let's talk about this just a little bit. Um, and we have to be careful when we enter a discussion like this because I always say that it is God in the end who judges. This is not for us to do. We're not, we're not asked to judge uh, when it comes to uh, eternal salvation and eternal welfare. But, you know, you can't help but see when these people responded, well, Lord, we, we uh, ate in the streets with you. We were in the streets when you were teaching. And they knew of Jesus, right? They knew about Jesus. But that was much different than having faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So saving faith is not, you know, knowing facts about Jesus and knowing information about Jesus. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't learn all we can about Christ and about, that's why we're in Bible class, right? Uh, but uh, that is not saving faith or having a mere acquaintance with Jesus. 
And I wonder today, you know, if you were to ask some people, <clears throat> you know, do you think you're going to heaven? And, oh, yeah. Why? What some of the answers might be. I don't know. I, I'm, I did, uh, I think I've mentioned this before in this class. When I went out from seminary, my first congregation was Zion Lutheran in Mascouda, Illinois. Some of you know where that is. Uh, it's about uh, eight miles due east of Belleville, if that helps you at all. And uh, when I got there, I said to the elders, you know, I'd like to start going out with you. And I want to start visiting the people who have not been in church for at least a year. And we'll start there and we'll work our way back. And so I'll never forget, we went to this one house. Very nice gentleman. We got talking. You know, we got, first of all, talk about the cardinals or something, you know. And then we got down to, what about your relationship with Christ? How would you, how would you describe your relationship with Christ? His answers were things like, I was confirmed at Zion Lutheran Church. I was, well, I was baptized at Zion. I was confirmed at Zion. My, I think it was like great, great grandparents were like charter members who helped start Zion. All this stuff that he was trusting in was all past stuff. And so we kept trying to bring the conversation back to what is your relationship with Christ today? You know, do you trust Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and everlasting life? In other words, to put it in the language of our, of our lesson here, are you entering through the narrow door? You know, and, you know, that's something I think for all, uh, for all people to consider. Um, notice that this, this lesson also speaks directly against any idea that all people eventually are going to be saved. In other words, a universalism. It's described as a universalism. And that's the idea that, you know, on the last day, God's going to smile on everybody and everybody's going to be let in. Or there's another idea that, you know, salvation is the top of the mountain and, you know, we're all just heading on different paths there. And as long as we're sincere, that on the last day, we'll all reach the summit together. You know, now, I admit, that sounds so nice, doesn't it? I mean, that it's just, it just sounds so beautiful and wonderful. Now, the only trouble is uh, we have plenty of places in Scripture where that is just not the case, you know. And, and here is certainly one of them, that Jesus, and this is Jesus. This is not, you know, they can't blame Paul or Peter or somebody. This is Jesus saying these words. And so that, again, I think the other thing that, that comes is, again, our resolve as a, as a church to get that good news out in every possible way we can, and both in outreach as well as in reach to people that you know we haven't seen in a long time here. And the point is not, gee, how come you haven't been in church? The point is, how is your relationship with Christ today? You know, I hope it's good. Maybe you've been going somewhere else to church. That's great. You know, but how is your relationship with Christ? That's the bottom line. And sometimes we can tend to get so lost in all of the, you know, the busyness of church life and so on that we forget that it's ultimately a one-on-one -on -one relationship with Christ. You know, that that day we will stand before the judgment seat of God and not claim how many things we did or didn't do or how many uh, hours we spent uh, serving, uh, you know, or any of those things. It's simply claiming Christ, that he took my place on the cross, he endured my punishment, I trust him and his sacrifice for my sin. That is the bottom line. 
And that's what we have to keep in mind. So this, this definitely, you know, uh, definitely uh, brings a couple of those things out, I think, for us to see. Okay? I had one quote. Uh, Reed Lessing, I don't know if you, some of you know, maybe know of Dr. Lessing. He was a professor of Old Testament at the seminary for many years and is now at St. Michael Lutheran Church as a parish pastor in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And uh, he wrote a commentary on Isaiah, this, this section of Isaiah. And uh, I wrote this down. He says, there are two truths about hell. First, A, we deserve it. Then B, Christ suffered it in our place on the cross. Okay? Abandoned by the Father, forsaken by the Father on the cross. And because of that, of course, we look forward to the new heaven and the new earth to come. Okay? All right. Let me stop there uh, with the gospel lesson. We're going to jump back to Hebrews, the epistle lesson, for a moment. But any either comments or questions about the gospel lesson for next week? Yes, Ruth? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay, great question. Now, the question again is that the phrase, shut the door. And that would, we would say that that, what, what does that mean in other words? We would say certainly, at, when, when is your last moment to enter by the narrow door? While you're still, while you still have breath in your lungs and, you know, yeah, while you're still alive. That really at that point, at the point of death, we have nothing in scripture that indicates that post-death there is some, uh, you know, second chance that uh, you, you know you take a mulligan on your on your life and you get a you get another shot at it, and so uh, we would say that in the first place, yes, that door is shut at the point of death, and there's another sense and on Judgment Day the same thing. I've often referred to Judgment Day more as we might think of as Sentencing Day, that at death our our verdict is rendered, you might say, and and well even up till that point by by rejection. Uh, but there's no, no indication in Scripture anywhere that somehow there's a second chance, uh, you know, to, to enter by the narrow door. So uh, your question is a very good one. We would say at the point of death that your eternal fate is decided, unfortunately for some people, and then judgment day is actually more like sentencing day, that it is, the sentence is enacted, they might say, for both body and soul on the last day. Yeah. But boy, that's, that's a harsh thing, isn't it? That, that the door is shut, and there you cannot get in. You cannot enter. Okay? All right. All right, let's go on to Hebrews then. Uh, I don't know if you guys are getting tired of Hebrews yet, but this will be, uh, next week will be yet another. Uh, we've been marching through Hebrews, especially chapters 11 and 12. And let me just say one word about uh, Hebrews, that we don't know exactly who the author is, it is a letter written to Hebrews or to Jews. We think they were uh, certainly Jewish Christians who were facing persecution at that time. And as Jewish Christians facing persecution, they would have been tempted simply to give up all this talk about Christ and just slide back into Judaism once again, or worse yet, slide into nothing, you know. In other words, you see repeatedly in Hebrews this idea, and it was brought out uh, wonderfully in the sermon today, the idea of enduring and, and being there to the end. Uh, Reverend Seva King talked about it's a marathon, not a sprint. And that's what 
the writer to the Hebrews is encouraging them to do. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Hang in there until the end, okay? And so, uh, you know, it, these, these readings from Hebrews, although we're not facing anything like the persecution that they were, they still have a lot to say to us because we're in the same boat in that sense, right, of enduring on this. I want to, for those of you that have a Bible, I want to just look at, for a second, at Hebrews 10, and it, it says just a little bit here. We'll just read a few verses here. Uh, we, we, we always look in the book of Hebrews for some hints or some clues, but what were they actually experiencing? What, you know, what, what really was their, their persecution? And I want to start at verse 32 here in Hebrews 10, and it kind of gets the idea across. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So it appears at the very least they were publicly um, ridiculed is probably too, too weak a word. Uh, reproach, you know, they were, they were just... Uh, embarrassed and shamed publicly, but even worse now, verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison, and we think that that means some of their own were imprisoned as well, uh, and you joyfully ex accepted the plundering of your property, so they lost their, some of them lost their property as a result, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That's kind of right back to what uh, Reverend Siva King was preaching about today, the heavenly home versus the homes here. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have, have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So there again is that same idea. They're being persecuted. Their temptation is going to be, let's just give in to this. Let's just let go of Christ, and, and our lives will be better here. Our lives will be easier. We won't face this anymore. And the writer to the Hebrews is encouraging them to hang in there, okay? Now, let's go, starting at Hebrews 12, a lesson for next Sunday. We will probably get through all this, but uh, we'll start. Now, verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. <laughs> I, guess, I guess you'd say on the one hand, but what's the writer saying here? At least so far, you haven't what? shed your blood. You haven't been killed. And, and there's no, we don't have any indication in Hebrews, at least yet, that some had been killed or, you know, greatly injured. But did you catch that phrase, not yet? I mean, that kind of portends that, you know, we're not saying this couldn't happen or won't happen. And again, this is, we, we, I think we fail to recognize that Christians were persecuted really from two sides in, this, in these early years. One side was from the Jews who thought Christ was a fraud and that any Christian, anybody preaching Christ, was, was leading people away from God, not toward God. And Saul, before he was Paul, was certainly one of those. But then you also increasingly, uh, especially toward the end of the, of the uh, first century, got them being persecuted from the Romans. And so the Christians were facing it really from both sides. And so here you've got Jews who are Christians, and they're, they're getting bombarded back and forth probably like a ping-pong ball here because of their faith. Uh, verse 5, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? 
And then he goes on here to quote Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the, ones he lo- the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, I'm going to go back and talk about this subject. I'm pretty sure I'm preaching on this next week, at least at this point. I'm, uh, I better decide. Uh, and notice that uh, this whole area of the discipline of the Lord, it clearly states here that the Lord disciplines us as his children. So let's just, let's just go down a few things here. Is it the case that when something bad happens in your life, God is punishing you because of your sin? No. Why not? This is where we as Lutherans, we have to look at the whole body of Scripture here and not just take one verse or verses. Because why? Christ already paid for all of our sin on the cross, right? So it's not that, you know, when I lose my job, that God is punishing me because I didn't go to church last Sunday or something like, you know, something like that. So it's not that he's punishing us for sin. When something bad comes into our life, could God have prevented it? Absolutely could have prevented it, right? If he is all-powerful, all-knowing, and, and so on, could have stopped it from happening. And I'm, I'm surely convinced that there are many, many, many things every day that we don't know about that God prevents from happening that could have otherwise, and his holy angels, could have otherwise taken place. Okay? So God allows certain things into our life for our good or for our bad? For our good. And that word discipline, it's unfortunate that that word Luther used, I forget the, the German word Luther used, and it set off, it was almost like punishment. That, and, and that's not, this word is the same, it comes from the same word in Greek for boy, paidos. And it, it means not only discipline in the sense of a, a chastening, but it also means instructing and training. Just like today, we've got uh, football players out there going through two-a-day workouts so that they'll be able to endure, right? They're training right now. It's the same sort of thing, okay? So God allows certain things into our lives. On the one hand, some bad things, bad experiences in our lives, and he wants to work through those in our lives to bring about endurance. See, the implication is here to these Hebrew Christians, 
Could God stop all this? Why is he letting this happen to us, right? Why doesn't he just come down and put an end to it? And uh, again, the writer to the Hebrews is suggesting again that the final outcome that he wants is uh, in verse 10, that we may share his holiness. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. And first of all, when you are a Christian, it obviously doesn't mean that you're never going to have something bad happen in your life, right? If that were the case, everybody would want to be a Christian, right? To, just so that they would have a, a life of Riley. That, uh, obviously, there's no, no promise of that whatsoever. And God does allow certain things into our lives, but also in the midst of those things in our lives, he works through them. Remember the promise in Romans 8, verse 28, God works for good in all things, right? Not just in certain things or some things or just the good things. He works for good in all things to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And Paul is not saying there in Romans 8 that all things are good. There are terrible things in this world. Cancer, heart disease, car accidents, we could go up and down a list here. There are terrible things in this world. But we have the assurance that even in the midst of those things, God is at work accomplishing his purpose in our lives, and that ultimate purpose is our salvation, okay? So the difference is these things come into our lives, and in the midst of them, God is right there at our side. He is instructing us. He is training us. He is, if you want to put it this way, disciplining us as his children. Now, that's, again, I would say very easy for me to stand here and say, uh, yet when, when the, the hard thing actually comes, that's another matter, isn't it? And that's when we first have to remind ourselves of these things, that no matter what it is, we're not in it alone. God is standing right by our side through every bit of it. The difference is we know that versus the person who does not. And so these, these, this really is about one of the most uh, practical subjects that, that we as Christians face, the day-to-day living in the midst of things coming into our lives that we are, are painful and we don't know, you know, why God allows that. What, what's, the, what's the first question many people will ask? Why me, right? Why now? Why this, right? And, you know, and I, I'm always, don't, you know, if anybody comes and tells you, well, this is exactly why God sent this into your life. I would turn around and walk away right away. Because, you know, how do they know that? You know, how do they know they don't have the mind of God? They can't say, well, this is exactly why God is allowing this into your life. But we, we can only say what we have in his word that we are promised, that even in the midst of these things, that God is at work and his ultimate goal is our salvation, keeping us strong in the faith, and our holiness, our, our being set apart for his use, and, and that's eternally uh, set apart for his use. So this section gets very, very practical for us. And as I say, there are people who, you know, on a daily basis are grappling with this very reality as they get a medical diagnosis or, you know, something happens in their life. And a life that was going along just smoothly is all of a sudden seems like it's dropped off a cliff. And so now what do we do? And, you know, it's, um, 
it's kind of, in a way, it's, the writer intends it to be comforting when he says that, you know, look at earthly fathers, and they discipline their sons. What father is there who doesn't discipline his son? And I was thinking to myself, well, I've seen a few, but, but <laughs> wish they would a little more. But, uh, but no, generally speaking, uh, what earthly father is there that doesn't discipline his son or instruct his son or train his son, right? Because he loves his son, and he wants his son to, to grow and develop and reach the, the full goal. And so the writer kind of uses that, that if we, if we uh, abide by and revere that kind of discipline, which is only for a short time here on this earth, how much more should we respect and revere the, the, the um, discipline that has an eternal outcome for us in our lives, okay? Now, I will be the first to admit that, and I think you probably have as well, unfortunately, probably seen people that have absolutely, when something has happened in their life like this, have turned their back on God and walked away. It has had just the opposite effect on them. Um, I can't explain why God allowed that to happen uh, in, ter in terms of that thing coming into their life in the first place. Uh, certainly it is not God's fault that they turned around and walked away from God. But, you know, we have to be honest. We, we do observe the other happening as well. On the other hand, we've seen people's lives change toward God also when something bad has come into their life. We've seen them draw near to God. You know, it's at that point that you realize when you get that diagnosis or that thing happens, you're not in control. As much as we may think that we are, you're not in control. And you need to have that reliance upon God who is. And that's you know, something, and I'm going to, well, I guess we'd better close here. Uh, uh, <clears throat> think of Paul in the New Testament. I'm going to mention this next Sunday. But remember Paul was uh, afflicted with, God. in fact, he even says God sent it. His, remember thorn in the flesh? He, he refers to it as thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. There is a lot of speculation that it might have been malaria, which was rampant in, the, in that area of Asia Minor at that time. Might have been some eye affliction because going back to his conversion and there are other clues. But he actually says the purpose that God allowed it was to keep him from getting too puffed up with pride, you know? So again, there's a good purpose, in this case, Paul's, per, uh, Paul's eternal welfare, as well as all the work that he did through Paul, you know, that God allowed that in his life. Paul says three times, I asked the Lord to remove it. And his answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, uh-uh, you're gonna have it. So just some thoughts. And uh, I think, I'm, as I say, I think I'm going to be preaching on this next week. We are, it looks like we better wrap up here. There's a whole section here coming up. This is a long lesson and compares uh, the, uh, the first covenant. Uh, there's an exhortation coming up. There's a section contrasting the old covenant, new covenant. And we just do not have the time. We've got about three minutes to get into all that. So let's close at this point then, and let's close with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.